My name is Steve Haefler, and I serve here as the lead pastor, uh, together with a team of pastors and deacons and other ministry leaders. And if you're our guest, welcome. It's great to have you uh, this morning with us. And if you're looking around and notice that everybody else has a candle and you might not, uh, we'll make sure that you get a candle at the end, because that's how we're going to close our final hymn this morning. Uh, We'll stand in a big circle like we've done in the past, and we will start with one candle lit from the Christ candle, and then uh, the piano will be played as those candles are all lit, and then our children will lead us in a final hymn. And again, so you're not distracted, the children will have LED candles, uh, not, not real flame. So I don't, I don't want your mind running somewhere it shouldn't here right at the beginning, uh, but it's great to have you. If you have your scriptures, your Bible, open up to Luke chapter 1. If you do not have a Bible... Uh, there, there is one in front of you, and if you don't own one, we'd love to gift that to you this morning. It's uh, an English Standard Version uh, Bible that you're welcome to take with you. Christmas Day, for many, even unbelievers, holds the anticipation of a special time with family and friends. I find it interesting how this time of year affects behavior, something as simple as the first day the red Starbucks Christmas cup comes out and everybody starts anticipating December 25th. Even those with no particular understanding of what it actually means that Christ, the promised Messiah, deliverer, rescuer, came, he arrived. That's what Advent means. We light Advent candles. Advent simply means arrival. He came and he visited us. That's really the truest meaning of what each of the candles represents. True love is found in Christ. In a world that is seeking for pleasure and happiness, that's different than joy. Joy is found in Christ. Peace, even when our hearts are restless, peace is found in Christ. And hope, in a world of hopelessness, True hope, a true, confident expectation is found in Jesus Christ. And so the candles help us build that anticipation as well until finally we are saying, just by illustration really, there's nothing special to the lit candles, but it's a picture that all these qualities are found in Jesus Christ. And that's really what Luke starts to point us to, this promised child this arrival. And here's the point, that the future and our view of it, even the immediate future, influences our behavior and attitude. If you have young children in your home, you already know that. It's Christmas Eve. And now it's a white Christmas Eve. And it's exciting, and it's magical, and it's all building in anticipation of that one morning. And it's interesting to me how even the expectation, let me use a word, let me carefully use this word, of a fictional character builds anticipation. How much more of someone who is nonfiction, someone who's real, someone who did arrive the first time? The Christmas story is the story of one amazing miracle surrounded by all these fulfilled prophecies and all these other miracles Matter of fact, if you look at your Bible, if, if, you're, if you're using an app 
or if you actually have a Bible in your hand, that is a collection of 66 different books. Within those pages, there are 2,500 prophecies, predictive prophecies, sometimes made hundreds of years before the actual event. And 2,000 of those prophecies have already been fulfilled. That means there are 500 that stretch into the future that await fulfillment. Luke's account of the arrival of the advent of Jesus Christ is the fulfilling of some of those prophecies made in Micah 5.2 and Isaiah 7.14 and in other places in your scripture. It's a type of acid test of the scripture's trustworthiness. The Koran does not have those. The Hindu Vedas do not have those. Scripture is unique in its trustworthiness of fulfilled prophecy. When you open up to Luke, you are opening up to what is called the closest land bridge to the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 4 was the last of the Old Testament words that were inscripturated. Between that time is approximately 400 years when there is no angel and no word from God that was inscripturated. 400 years of what has been called the silent years. But God wasn't silent in the sense that he was inactive. He was working. Israel was initially under Persia. Then it, under Alexander the Great, came under Greek influence. And then by the time you open up Luke chapter 1, they're under sort of Daniel's fourth beast or the iron legs of the vision that Nebuchadnezzar saw, it's under the power of Rome. It's dark. God is silent. The Jews feel abandoned except for the promises of the Old Testament. But look at what Zechariah says in Luke chapter 1 verse 78. He says this, the sunrise shall visit us from on high. That's his expectation. In Luke chapters 1 to 2, we started this series about a month ago in the Gospel of Luke, and we are in God's providential design in probably one of the most well-known portions of Luke because it's read on Christmas morning in many homes. But Luke chapter 1 and 2 are intended to highlight a particular birth of a unique son, But what Luke does that Matthew, Mark, and John don't do is he actually starts with the birth of another child. And that child's name is John. Look at verse 50. Look at verse 39. Actually, I believe I'm in verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth. Now nine months have passed since the the angel Gabriel appeared in the temple to her husband, Zecharias. He did not believe the angel, and so Gabriel says, you won't be able to talk until this event comes to pass. It's been nine months. Zechariah can't talk. And she bore a son, verse 58. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, And they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. 
And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father. Right? He had to learn a different way to communicate. His voice had been taken away. He didn't believe the angel. And now for nine months, he's had to learn to communicate through sign language. And they asked him, and they made signs to him, inquiring what he, the father, wanted his son to be called. Verse 63. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. Do you remember how they decided upon this name? This is what the words of God through the angel Gabriel told them to name him. It's interesting. Nine months he's been speechless. His son has been alive now for eight days, and yet Zechariah still can't what? And certainly he's wondering, wait a minute, the angel said that my voice would be restored after this event came to pass, and eight days in he still can't speak. I'd be concerned. I'd be thinking this is permanent. But look at what happens. He writes on a tablet, his name is John, and they all wondered, And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors and all these things were talked about throughout the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts saying, what then will this child be? Now remember, it's talking about John, not Jesus yet. For the hand of the Lord was with him. Zechariah and Elizabeth, probably for their entire life, had to explain to family and friends and neighbors why God had not blessed them with a child. Barrenness during this time period was viewed as God withholding his blessing. And here they are, their entire life, without the blessing of a child They probably, I'm sure, had to explain that it was not any wrongdoing on their part. We know that because Luke provides this detail in verse 6. They were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Perhaps that is in part what led them to a small synagogue up in the Judean hillside and not to seek the power of position in Jerusalem. We're not told what we are told is that this was a disappointment to them. So right as soon as you open the gospel according to Luke, you face real life, don't you? Real people, a real difficulty, and a real struggle. To the point that when the angel Gabriel tells Zechariah, your wife Elizabeth is going to have a son, he chooses to not believe. Well, the child is born, Zechariah can't speak, and yet he obeys now. He replaces his disbelief with belief, and his faith now is obedience, and instead of naming his son Zechariah, he says his name is, as if it's already a done deal, his name is John, and immediately he can speak. Faith replacing unbelief. What comes out of Zechariah's mouth first is noteworthy because what he is going to do is he's going to sing a song. We're familiar with Mary's Magnificat, right? Her magnifying God through him. Well, Zechariah sings also. And what he does is he affirms 
the realities of Old Testament prophecy that are being fulfilled in his son John and also in the other child that's about to be born in Jesus. Zechariah is an Old Testament theologian. The majority of his life has been serving God in Israel. Both he and his wife are from Aaron's priestly line. So they both know that their son will not be the Messiah because the Messiah comes from what line? Right? He's from the Davidic line, from the tribe of Judah. Both Zechariah and Elizabeth know what the Old Testament has promised. And Zechariah himself is the first land point from the Old Testament. Look at what he says. Let's look at his song. Look at verse 67. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, he's talking about his own son, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. By the way, that's the gospel. That's good news. That's the present you didn't expect, but the gift that you need most. The forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. The first part of what Zechariah prays or prophesies or sings is the Davidic covenant. 2 Samuel 7, 1 Chronicles 17, Psalm 89, and 40 other references. The second part comes from the Abrahamic covenant. So you have these two covenants, and what John is saying is all those promises that God agreed to do after being silent for 400 years are about to come to pass. And then at the end of his hymn, there are these features or elements of the new covenant that both Jeremiah and Ezekiel hint at. So when Zechariah finds out his son is the forerunner, he puts before you in him that the Davidic covenant and the Abrahamic covenant and the new covenant are about to be fulfilled. That's what he says in verse 72 to 73. Look at this little portion. That God has remembered his holy covenant, the oath that he swore. Look at verse 68. He says, God has visited. God showed up. God stepped into history. 400 years after being under the Persians and the Greeks and now the Romans, God visits his people. 
You know, we are not the only generation to perceive God as silent or inactive or somehow far off and distant. You're not the only person who has doubts. Zechariah doubted. His son John, many years ahead from this time, will be in prison. The very one that he preached about, when he looks at Jesus, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John who says, Jesus must increase and I must decrease. John who says, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. John ends up in prison and he starts to question whether Jesus is really the Messiah. At the end of his life, he has doubts. You ever feel that way? Everybody else is talking about answers to prayer and miracles and visions and yet you still feel like you're in the 400 years of silence. But then God visits. Zechariah said he has visited, verse 68, and redeemed his people. And he uses a clever term in verse 69. He says that this individual, this promised Messiah, is a horn of salvation. What does that mean? You know that Zechariah never read the New Testament. All he had was the Old Testament. He never read Romans or Ephesians. He never tried to understand the book of Revelation. He didn't have a single gospel account to read, but he understood from the Davidic and Abrahamic covenants that there was a powerful leader, a king, a horn of salvation, who was an individual that was coming. Horn means power or majesty. It was referred to... uh, really in reference to an animal who was not only decorated with horns, but could use them as defense. African hunters have seen a sable antelope kill a full-grown male lion with its backwards arching horns. The horn of salvation is majesty and power. And Zechariah says that individual is coming. He uses... The psalmist uses this term in Psalm 18. Let me just read to you three verses. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield, and here it is, and the horn of my salvation, the majesty of and the glory of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. Zechariah is borrowing the same wording of the psalmist in Psalm 18. So he is saying there is a powerful, deliverer, king that's about to be born. Look at, look at the similar terms. Look at verse 71. That we should be, what's the next word? saved, look at verse 72, to show the mercy promised. Verse 74, being delivered. Verse 77, salvation. Verse 77, the forgiveness of their sins. Verse 78, the tender mercy of God. And God's mercy is tender. God not giving to you what you deserve is His mercy. God not punishing you for your sins, for what they deserve, 
is his mercy. And verse 79, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. Zechariah knows this person, this powerful king, this horn of salvation is about to appear. And so Luke, in quick succession, and this isn't where we typically begin when we read it, look what Luke records next. Look at Luke chapter 2, verse 1. And he starts with a historical marker. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world, that the entire Roman world, that's a reminder that Israel is oppressed They have been under an occupying enemy for for hundreds of years. And in God's providence, this Roman power says that the whole world needs to be registered. You need to travel back to your home place and register in that area. A census was demanded. Look at verse 2. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Other men are in power. The nation itself is oppressed. And Mary is pregnant. And now she has to take a road trip. Do you know sometimes God's ways seem inconvenient? Sometimes God's ways seem seem unkind. But God in his wisdom is getting Joseph and Mary all the way down to what little hamlet of a town? All the way down to Bethlehem because Micah 5.2 says what? I mean, this is five miles outside of kingly Bethlehem, but the, or outside of kingly Jerusalem, but the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. The bread of life is going to be born in a little town that means house of bread, and he's going to be placed in a feeding trough. And yet, Joseph and Mary are way up north. So what does God use? He uses Rome. He uses Rome and a census, and they have to start traveling. Look at verse 3. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, that's in the north, from the town of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. A long, unexpected road trip, and she's expecting a son. Look at verse 6. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. She's not even home. She's away from family, away from what's familiar. And while she's in Bethlehem, the time came for her to give birth. Verse 7, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place them in the inn. The inn is probably full because others had to go there as well to be registered. There's crowds, there's chaos, there's busyness, and they find something that is less than low-income housing. And do you know that detail is on purpose? The King of Heaven, the Creator of all the worlds, is born in an overlooked little town And he's placed where barn animals eat from. And notice who gets the announcement of his birth. There's really, there's beautiful little details in here, but Luke's just recording this as a simple story. 
There was no place for them in the inn. Look at verse 8. And in the same region, probably raising the lambs that would be slaughtered at the, at the festivities that are coming up, five miles outside of Jerusalem, there are shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And the angel appears to that group of men. Men who were considered shifty and untrustworthy, eating, even thieving migrant workers is what they were considered. And they were the first ones to get an announcement about the arrival of a king. The arrival of a king who's in a manger. Shepherds, dirty, isolated shepherds. Do you start to see a pattern? Do you see what Luke's trying to do? This is not the king you expected. What would you think if the announcement of the Savior of the world came first to Mexicans in Tijuana? Or Persians in rural Iran? Or to camel and goat shepherds in Afghanistan? Not to Washington, not to Moscow, or Beijing, or Mumbai, or Tokyo, but the King of Heaven going out to camel shepherds in Afghanistan. Is that who you would expect? What if Jesus first arrived in Colorado to those along Colfax or Spear or the 50,000 Ethiopians in Aurora? Because I'm going to tell you, the religious elite in Jerusalem didn't want this kind of a Messiah. They weren't looking for him And when they found out who he was, they rejected him because of who he identified with. And this is good news for us. Because the Savior moves near us to seek and to save those who are lost. And there is no one that is overlooked. Just like David, out in the field as a shepherd, and they're looking for the next king. And even his brothers are like, oh, it's just David, he's out there shepherding. And Samuel has to say, no, we'll wait for him. It wasn't the older, good-looking brother. It was the scruffy, young son out in the field. These have always been the ways of God. And he moves near to us. Would you welcome that kind of Messiah? Because that's what Luke is telling you. This is good news. You can't be isolated or overlooked or in the wrong income bracket to be missed by Jesus. We'll be getting there in a couple months, but Luke 15, chapters 15 to 19, has been called the gospel of the outcasts because it displays Jesus' compassion to the marginalized of his day. Some of those whom you would never even touch because they're lepers. And Jesus not only speaks a word to heal them, which he can do, but he touches them. Do you know there is no one so unclean or so dirty that Jesus cannot clean? Look at verse 9. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, to shepherds, to dirty, low-income bracket, isolated out in a field. The angels appear to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not. 
For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. All, all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David. Unto you, shepherds, is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ. That's the the New Testament word for Messiah, the promised deliverer, who is Christ the Lord. He's the sovereign king. How will they know? Look at verse 12. And this will be a sign for you, shepherds. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Well, that would be, that would be conspicuous. I'm sure he's probably the only baby in a feeding trough that night. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest. The angels knew this was special. And on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Verse 15. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. The creator of the universe laid probably where no child should be laid. And it's a beautiful picture of Christ's humility. Matthew Henry, one of the older commentators, said this, Christ well knew how unwilling we are to be humbly lodged, clothed, or fed. How we desire to have our children decorated and indulged. How apt the poor are to envy the rich. And how prone the rich to disdain the poor. But when we by faith view the Son of God being made man, made a human, and lying in a manger, our vanity, our ambition, and our envy are all checked. We cannot with this object rightly before us seek great things for ourselves. Donald MacLeod said this, Christ possessed all the majesty of deity performed all its functions, and enjoyed all its prerogatives. He was invulnerable to pain, frustration, and embarrassment. He existed in unclouded serenity. His supremacy was total, his satisfaction complete, and his blessedness perfect. So why did all that change? Why did he subject himself to pain? The death of a cross which deliberately delayed death until the maximum torment could be inflicted. Why subject himself to humiliation, being hung naked at a busy crossroad? That's what the Romans did. Why did he subject himself to all those things? Because we needed someone to die for our sins. We needed a rescuer, deliverer. And this individual, this powerful king of heaven, was prophesied hundreds of years before, and now he arrives. And there are no trumpets, there is no crown, and there is no palace. There's sheep manure, there's hay, and there's no room for him in the inn. Look at verse 17. And when they, when the shepherds saw it, 
they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. They're really the first preachers of Christmas. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And just like that, in a simple narrative, Luke writes certain truth in uncertain times. And the king just came into the world and almost nobody knows it. I love Christmas time. I love the family time. I love both the songs we sing as a church. I love all the other secular Christmas, most of them. I love this time of year. But all the images we have of Christmas, all even the sentimental images we have of Christmas time, because it is a wonderful time to remember that Christ became a human. He wasn't a human before he was born. He was the eternal Son of God. He took on flesh for a specific reason. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's good news. He didn't come to rule over good people. He didn't come to rule over powerful people. He didn't come to rule as the Persians and the Greeks and the Romans were ruling. He came to save sinners. A little town called Bethlehem leads in about 33 years to a hill less than 10 miles away called Calvary. An insignificant and some would say crude place in that little town, a shelter for livestock, leads to another insignificant and very cruel place called Golgotha. And a lowly resting place in that shelter A feeding trough leads to another insignificant place, a wooden cross, as we have sang, the emblem of suffering and shame. And he did that for you. Sin and evil and disappointment, as you see in Luke chapter 1 and 2, are realities in this world. Some of you walked in here this morning with an intense pain with the suffering that is invisible because it's inside. What is the answer to such conflict and hopelessness and doubt and fear? Well, it's the arrival of someone who can change all that. It's the the arrival of the Son of God who came so that you might have light even though you sit in darkness and love and hope and joy and peace all found in him, Jesus, Emmanuel, which means God with us, Yahweh, born as a baby, Jesus Christ as a 33-year-old perfect man who died on the cross and paid the penalty for your sin because the wages of sin is death, but the gift, that's what it is, the gift of God, which is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Do you believe in him? You might say, how? Believing is simply trusting. It's placing confidence in something. Believing that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world and that by simple faith, believing you have life in his name. 
He died the death you deserve so that you might have an eternal life that you didn't deserve. And like any other gift, you simply, what? Receive it. When your child opens a gift tomorrow morning, you're not going to charge them a fee. I hope you don't. It's a gift. That's what a gift is. And the gift costs you something. But it costs you nothing to receive it. That's what the gift of the forgiveness of sin in Jesus Christ is. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the beautiful narrative of the real humanity that is seen in Luke chapter 1, even of an old wise priest who doubts and then can't speak for nine months. Lord, we are so much like Zechariah. Thank you for the picture and illustration of Mary who simply said, let it be according to your servant and according to your word. We thank you for the humility in that. Thank you for the fulfilled prophecies and the miracles, the angels. After 400 years of seeming silence, the fulfillment of prophecy and your words coming true. Help us to believe also that your second advent, your second coming, will also be fulfilled. Thank you for the gift of your Son who humbled himself, emptied himself, became a servant, came to this earth to die for our sin. What a gift of grace. We pause and we thank you for that. We need that good news again this morning. Not just the time we were born again. We need the reminder of your good news gift and the forgiveness of sin again this morning. Lord, our prayer is that if there is anyone here who has not received the gift of your Son, the gift of eternal life, that you would convince them in their hearts, convict them of their unbelief, and would they trust this morning and receive the greatest gift that could ever be given this Christmas. Thank you for your love for us, your mercy, your kindness, and your Son. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We will close with a hymn of response. We're going to do that a little differently this morning, in where before we sing, and the children will be standing on the first couple stairs with LED candles, and our music team will lead us in a final hymn this morning, and then we will stand, I think, I think we'll be able to all fit uh, in a part circle. We won't stand in front of the children and then I will start to light a candle on either side of me from the Christ candle. Uh, the lights will be turned off. We'll still be able to see. The picture is that the light of Christ has come into the world. And as the candles are lit, that light becomes brighter. That's what believers are supposed to be. They're supposed to be a city set on top of a hill. Not only has that light then affected us is part of the picture, that we who once lived in the shadows of darkness and in the fear of death have seen this incredible light, but we share that light with others until the whole world, until every nation and tribe and tongue and people hear the good news of the light of the world. So 